Uh, last Sunday morning, I got up in Phoenix, Arizona at 5 o'clock in the morning and got in my car and drove like crazy to get here to hear Josh preach. And that's, of course, because Josh is just a great preacher. My aura is just emanating here. Uh, but it was also to uh, get some uh, idea of how Josh was going to introduce the study of First John to us, and so I kind of wanted to get some context in which to know how this uh, entered. Does somebody have the clicker? Am I? Or... Oh, you want? Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably. I could say next slide, next slide, but you know. Okay, so overview of 1 John. This is some of the things we learned. First of all, you all sang a song about 1 John that I didn't know, and I've got to learn that song. It's a pretty cool song. Uh, but Josh was telling about uh, 1 John being written in Ephesus to Jewish Christians in Ephesus. It was more like a, a pamphlet or a teaching than a letter, and it was written with respect to some tension that was going along, around in the church in Ephesus, and uh, the problem was that um, the, they had sort of been tempted by kind of an otherworldly sort of faith, uh, a faith that uh, some believed that God was sort of distant and uh, away and in the heavens, and basically looked forward to escaping from life here to be with God there. Uh, and um, on earth, here, now, what this amounted to was to uh, develop some sort of special knowledge or special experiences that could be obtained particularly in the context of transcendent experience, something that transcended the life here and now. That's what the aim or the goal was for these Christians. And uh, <clears throat> in the context of that thought, Jesus was understood not to be actually an embodied incarnate human being. Jesus was a sort of spirit that dwelled among us, and so even Jesus was thought to be kind of out there in some transcendent, non-material, detached uh, world. Jesus was not embodied, not incarnate, not a present, not really present, in our world. Therefore, uh, they believe that sort of our, our embodied everyday life really didn't matter. What really mattered is kind of transcendent experiences that would lead us eventually to the world that was out there. So life here and now was not particularly important. And if life was not particularly important, sin really did not matter, was not an issue. So we, we don't have sin, sin's not an issue because life now, here and now, didn't particularly matter. Uh, the solution and the things that are taught in the, the, uh, this book of 1 John uh, teaches us more about an embodied Christian life. Uh, it is a life lived within the light of the love of God. Those three L's are pretty good for remembering what the themes are in 1 John life and love and light. Uh, but Christian life is embedded. It is part of this messiness 
of life. It, is, it occurs in the messiness of life and in the context of our sin. But as Josh taught us and talked about, because, our, um, that because of Christ, the power of sin has been defeated and defeated within the context of our confession. So this is kind of the basic um, themes and um, things we want to pay attention to as we study 1 John. So I want to talk about 1 John uh, 3, 1 to 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that this is, and that this is and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So what I'd like to, to pull out of this for our discussion this morning and is uh, the idea of love, and particularly the love of the Father, the, the love that the Father lavishes on his children, the children of God, and on the idea of being like him. The love of the Father lavished on us as children and the sort of idea that we might become like him. And uh, I want to think about this in ways that aren't like particularly novel or new, and in fact, some of what Adrian was talking about, some of what Adam was talking about kind of is reflected in some of what I want to say. I want to talk about this in terms of order and chaos. And in the Bible, chaos is, is um, likened to water, to the sea particularly. And this uh, drawing we saw at Easter was made by Will Hall, who is that uh, individual who for 20 years was homeless and did these drawings on the dashboard of his car in pencil. And I saw this one Easter and thought, you know, that's it. The water is the chaos and the bridge and the train are the order in the midst of chaos. Uh, no, matter, no matter how orderly we think things are at any moment, we know that we live with the threat of chaos breaking out in our lives, being thrown into chaos. Beneath the surface of our well-ordered life lurks chaos. So economic chaos, you know, you lose a job or uh, you lose your housing, or your car falls apart, or your business fails, or major medical costs, bills, 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 economic chaos. Uh, but there's also health chaos. Uh, a person, ourselves, or somebody in our family gets a major illness or a major accident, and so we have lots of chaos in our lives related to those things that we worry about and fear, social chaos, family tensions, you know, we just don't escape this in our family, even divorce, alienation from your family of origin, 
uh, major tensions with your children, breakdown of important friendships, uh, breakdown of community civility, things happening in the community that just are chaotic. So we live with this worry that underneath the orderliness of our life lurks chaos. And I want to, at this time, actually share with you my experience of chaos, actually our experience, Jan, my wife, and I's experience. Some of you, many of you, may not know Jan. She passed away six years ago. She was an important part of Mountainside when she was alive. And in 1995, Janet and I were driving through Colorado on our way to a conference in Aspen. And I was going to a conference there, and Janet was going to stay there a day or two and then go on to uh, Denver and fly from Denver to Atlanta and teach a professional class at Atlanta. And Jan was absolutely on the top of her career at that time. She was just elected a president of the National Association of Healthcare Quality. That was her career area. She was sort of at the top. Things were as about as orderly in so many areas as one could expect. And in a New York minute, uh, our life was thrown into chaos. Janet fell asleep at the wheel. We ended up bouncing stem over stern down Highway 70 in Colorado. Janet broke her neck and ended up with quadriplegia. And just like that, life that seemed so orderly was chaotic. And there was lots of parts of this chaos. Certainly Janet's quadriplegia and all the stuff that she had to deal with and we had to deal with around learning to live in a wheelchair and, um, and economic chaos. Janet was about 60% of our income at that time and a lot of the work she did consulting she could not do while in a wheelchair. And so we had huge amounts of economic chaos. Just one little thing. Uh, we trashed one car, totaled it in that wreck. I had another car I was driving that was a lease. We really couldn't afford the lease anymore, so we gave up the lease on the car, and my brother loaned me a 1970s Ford uh, station wagon that was a big boat and was horrible. It was so <laughs> bad that the seats of the car were worn out to the springs, and I had to put a pillow on it in order to drive the car. And so for about, I don't know, three to six months, somewhere in there, I drove this car to Fuller to, you know, Professor Brown showing up in his wonderful car. And our house had to be refitted, refitted for wheelchair access. We needed to figure out transportation, how in the world we were going to get Jan around the world when she was in a wheelchair. Uh, and there was big psychological impact on Janet. Janet was a very together, competent person. And uh, so much so that she was very much the matriarch in our family. Our family was like a herd of elephants. The, mat <laughs> the matriarch was the center of the family and I was like some bull elephant running around out of my way <laughs> somewhere else. And, and this disturbed that to some degree. And Janet had to, and our family had to adjust to this. And Janet had to figure out herself and her own self-confidence. 
and it affected our social relationships. Some people came very close, but for some of our friends, this was too much of a reminder and a threat of the fear of chaos that they actually couldn't be with us. They, they moved away. It was just too much of a reminder of how chaotic life can become, and they couldn't really hang out, out with us to any degree anymore. And then in about two years, we started to get things together. Life started to seem like it was getting orderly again, and Janet was diagnosed with breast cancer. So cancer, the big chaos word, was uh, dropped in the middle of all of this. And so for 15 years, she lived both in a wheelchair and with a diagnosis of cancer. So this is just one illustration that, you know, before, below the level of the order that we think we live in and that we sort of have together here is this lurking chaos that can come up. This is, you know, there are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, the basic law of entropy, chaos eventually dissociates itself or decomposes itself into disorder. That's a basic law in thermodynamics, and it's true, true of human systems everywhere you find them, entropy. And it's, you know, the whole issue of nature. Nature just imposes on us in ways, you know, floods and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff, but also diseases and other things that are just part of the world we live in that Im can impose chaos, real chaos, into our lives. And then just our own weakness, our own folly, uh, our own errors, our own sin, uh, just adds to the chaos that we experience and live in. And it's actually not just the chaos itself, uh, but it's the knowledge of the possibility of chaos that produces fear. So we live in this life of fear that we are going to encounter chaos. And we know it's out there, however implicitly, however we try to avoid the thought, we know it's there and so we, we have a certain, certain anxiety and fear about this chaos that can enter our lives so easily. Things are gonna get out of control at any minute. I just gotta, you know, take care of things. And nothing is more paralyzing or distorting to life than fear. Fear just totally warps and destroys life. But at some level or another, we all know this fear. So, in case I have totally depressed all of you, which I know I have, there is a <laughs> there is a point here, and we'll get to a better part of the story in a minute, so hang on. So here's part of, the, of what we see in 1 John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. What does this lavishing love of the Father have to do with chaos and order? Uh, a, if you think about it a while, a core expression of the love of parents for their children is to try to help bring order into the chaos in the lives of children. Try as best we can. 
So infants are born into the world in total chaos. They are physiologically in chaos. They are no longer in the womb attached to mom. They are now in a chaotic world and uh, have no way of taking care of themselves or dealing with the chaos. So we as parents have to, you know, take care of this infant. If any infant left out to take care of themselves dies, they are not capable of dealing with the physiological chaos. But it's also mental chaos because children just are now experiencing a visual world and an auditory world and a tactile world and all kind of stuff that is just totally new and it's totally chaos. And so we as parents are trying to bring order to that child's life, bring order to the chaos. And of course, when they get to be toddlers, the nature of the potential chaos shifts a bit, but it's no less real. So the toddlers, as they run around here, are sort of, we worry about them toddling into chaos, into disorder. And children continue to this, exist on the verge of chaos. It's, it's sort of like we get one thing under control and another thing emerges and we get that under control and another thing emerges. And we're constantly as parents trying to bring order into the chaos of our children's lives. And of course, teenagers get it together on some fronts, but find other ways to enter into chaos. <laughs> so, you know the drill. And so as a parent, our primary role is to try to help bring order into the chaotic lives of our children, to protect, protect them in some way to, uh, from the risks, but also teach them to deal with the chaos, to protect themselves. Um, and children learn very soon the fear of the chaos. So children are not absent. It's not just the parents who fear the, cha the chaos, it's the children who have fear as well. Uh, some of you are psychologists, therapists, whatever, so you will know this part. There is an important theory in psychology called attachment theory. So attachment theory goes something like this. A relationship with a parent or parents that is secure, reliable, and mostly deals effectively with the chaos of their developing lives results in a sense of trust in other people and the ability to develop secure attachments with other persons throughout their lives. They learn to develop with the fear and insecurity of chaos and particularly attach that to other people. Without this childhood experience, children grow up with a basic fear and a distrust of others as not reliable to help them deal with the chaos that they fear. That others may in fact be the source of chaos. So attachment theory has this whole sort of scenario of early childhood experiences of unresolved chaos that leads to insecure attachments and resolved and, and protective and non-chaotic parenting relationships that gives them this basic confidence to go forward in life uh, with trust in other people. And so a part of the love lavished on us by the Father is to help us deal with the chaos, deal with the chaos itself, but also to help us understand 
the security and absence of fear that we can experience in the midst of the lavish love of the Father for us, his children. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. That's in 1 John as well, 1 John 4, 18. Perfect love drives out fear. Well, there is a problem with order. Go back to chaos and order. Order has its problems as well. Too much order can be problematic in its own right. Because of fear, we can end up sort of cowering in our orderly comfort zone. You know? Uh, I have my life in order, so please don't rock the boat. Uh, and don't ask me to do anything that rocks the boat. Fear of chaos can kind of live, cause us to live self-protective lives in our own version of a kind of a economic, social, uh, gated community where we sort of wall out and gate out all of the life around us that might bring up chaos. I am, you know, wanting order. And um, it, uh, you know, we want a lifestyle and a social and economic order that protects me. I want political systems that do not threaten my order. Life is orderly, do not uh, bring up the fear of disorder. And too much order may be secure, but it's not conducive to growth and formation and creativity. Uh, creativity and growth and formation is actually on the edge of chaos and kind of in the chaos a bit. It's not in the order. Once you're in order, you're kind of stagnant. But to, to grow and form and become better and better people is to live at the edge of the chaos. Uh, and that's certainly true in the lives, in, in parenting. So trying too hard to protect our children from the possibilities of chaos is actually to stunt their growth. They need to encounter chaos in protected ways for sure, but otherwise there's no real growth. You know, the idea of a helicopter parent helicopter parent who's around making sure that their children don't encounter anything that might be risky or that might cause them to uh, sort of be there on the edge of chaos and have to learn to deal with this in their lives. Um, in some of the work I do, I'm interested in the human nature and how you would describe human nature. And one of the ways I think about this is related to a kind of a technical area called complex dynamical systems. And basically in terms of human life, it means that we're complex systems that or organize, self-organize as we grow in relationship to the environment we inhabit. And so any time that our relationship with the environment gets chaotic, gets out of balance, uh, then we have to reform as persons in order to meet that challenge. We have to become a little bit different in order to accommodate that. And in fact, that is the life of a child. 
A child is, you know, things are sort of orderly, and then it encounters something new, and that's kind of chaotic, and it has to learn to develop that, to, de to organize to meet that challenge, and then they meet that challenge, and then they are a little bit older, sort of, they're a little bit more mature, they're a little bit smarter, and this is the way that children develop in, in meeting chaos. And in, in the technical language of systems theory, this is called catastrophes. So anytime there's a catastrophe, that is myself, person as a self, doesn't meet what's going on out there, then I have to adjust to grow, to reform. So in the, the nice, comfortable order, there is no growth, no real creativity, uh, where we grow and develop is at the edges or in the midst of chaos. Uh, so, just a comment on the story I told about Janet and I. When I think about back on that now, obviously there's a huge amount of, of regret and sorrow over the accident and all that it did for Janet and the spinal cord injury and all that she had to live with for 17 lives. That's just, you know, huge regret. But I kind of have mixed feelings because there's some part of it for me that I value the experience and how it changed me. Uh, I had to grow up a lot. This was not easy. This was, you know, hard work. And sometimes I got mad and frustrated and acted inappropriately and, I, you know, blamed the victim sort of thing. And I had to learn a lot. And it's just stuff I would not, I would like that not to have happened, but I would not like to have not grown and experienced in, in that way. So, um, so that brings us to the, another point here, and that is, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. What would it mean in this context to have become like Christ. If we are to become like the Father as a child becomes like a parent, we must do what he does to emulate, to copy, to follow what Christ does. And later on in this chapter of 1 John, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so the God who lavishes on us his children as his father is the God who lays down his life for us. Now if we think about that, laying down our life as dying for another person, this verse has sort of no meaning for us because we're never going to confront this. That's probably not going to happen. What it really means to lay down one's life is to put it down. Just put it aside. Quit toting it around and worrying about it and sort of taking care of the orderliness and the fear in that life. Uh, um, just put it down, that we might enter into the chaos of others and help them find a way through their chaos. Uh, and this is the love that First John is talking about. 
have the confidence in God's provision for us and the lack of fear of the chaos that we can experience in God's love for us, that we can walk through the chaos with other people. Uh, God, in his love for us, does not remove us from chaos, uh, and, uh, but helps us walk through chaos as we might walk through chaos with others. So, for example, you know, the water of chaos, I think that's in the next, whoops. Anyway, back to water of chaos. So, uh, the story of Noah. God prepared Noah and with the ark helped Noah negotiate his way through the chaos and come out the other side. Uh, the children of Israel and Moses leaving Egypt, the chaos in Egypt, and then the chaos of the Red Sea and the army behind them, and God prepared a way through the chaos. Uh, and then they uh, have to survive in the desert and the chaos of all that that left lots of grumbling. Uh, and then I think about the Babylonian captivity. Uh, you know, they're captives and they're captive and servants and whatever, and slaves again. And God says, uh, don't be afraid. I've got a plan for you. Seek the welfare of the city. Just kind of hunker down and don't worry about your own chaos. Yes, you're in chaos, but there are, are um, people in this city for whom you might uh, minister or to whom you might minister. And then that, that uh, reading of the Emmaus Road, you know, the guys are walking along the Emmaus Road, and this is all on Jesus' death become chaos. Their whole world has been, and Jesus kind of walks with them through that chaos, teaches them, helps them understand what is going on. So the good part of our story is that, you know, our story of the Janet's accident and quadriplegia and whatever just had a lot of ways that people walked into the chaos with us. Uh, right away, when we were in, we, this happened in Grand Junction, Colorado. So I was in the, we were, Janet was in the hospital in Grand Junction, Colorado. She had a surgery. Uh, and I, at that point, I was there by myself. And so I was sitting in the surgery room, you know, by myself. And in walks uh, Reverend James Hamilton, who had been the uh, chaplain when I was at Pasadena College, now Point Loma. And he lived an hour's drive away and heard about me and walked in and there he was sat with me through the surgery when I was there in Grand Junction, Colorado, all by myself with Janet in the hospital. Uh, while we were there, some friends brought, bought, bought tickets for Sharice and Wren to fly to Grand Junction and be with their mom, so uh, they were able to come. Uh, my brother flew in and uh, Nice to have my brother around for a few days, but he also spent some time going around finding where my car ended up, taking pictures of the car, taking pictures of where the accident occurred, and some other things that ended up really important. Uh, lots of other stuff. A friend Gary Tippett flew in and helped us negotiate some insurance things. I want to tell you about one person particularly, Jeannie Cousins. So Jeannie Cousins was a person in the church we attended who was an accountant, a very sharp, wonderful woman. She just retired, and having retired, she decided she was going to spend a one day a week at our house with Janet, 
doing all kinds of stuff. She washed things and cleaned things, and also spent a lot of time talking with Janet. She was a real spiritual encourager. And so, and this went on for years. And interestingly enough, the reciprocity, reciprocity of this love didn't escape this relationship because a few, you know, five years into this, Jeannie Cousins started developing Alzheimer's disease. But she kept coming, and pretty soon it was kind of a blurred line of who was caring for who. But it was great. It was they were able to, you know, take care of herself. But these are all little things, but they're little things in which people walked into our life in the midst of chaos that helped us walk through chaos in really, really important ways. This is, is how we manifest or how we come to look like the God who lavishes love on us like a father lavishes love on children. So just to kind of summarize this in one form, so like children we are threatened by chaos, have the basic fear that we will be cast into more chaos at any moment, but God, our Father, is here to walk with us through the chaos into, into order. But the hands and feet of the God who walks with us and lavishes the love is usually each other. And uh, the order that God brings us into is not comfortable order. It's not order totally away from chaos, but it's sufficient order to allow us the lack of fear to be able to walk into the chaos of the lives of other people and enter into what they are facing. We come, become like him in being able to put aside our own lives, our worries about chaos, our fear, to walk through the chaos with one another. So to just kind of jump forward into our teachings over the next few weeks, here are just some verses from 1 John that are a part of this whole story. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. Whoop. There we go. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love with words, not with words, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and truth. So, that's what we learn from First John. And our children are here to bring their chaos. Yeah.